Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we have Lauren. Hello. Amelia. Hello. And Justin. To celebrate the one year anniversary of La Grange Point, we are delving into first place at the Olympic podium by looking at the Winter Olympics, science behind the Olympics, some interesting scientific discoveries related to hot pants and the Olympic gold, as well as sports that didn't quite make it. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. Now, obviously, as we're talking about the Olympics, our city of science for this week will be the city of Sochi, which is occasionally referred to as a subtropical beach resort town that is currently hosting the Winter Olympics. And we've had the weather there reaching a balmy 16 to 20 degrees Celsius this week, which is phenomenal and lovely weather. And I really want to make a case here. If Sochi can host the Winter Olympics, I see no reason why Melbourne cannot host it in the future. Exactly. In the middle of winter, we're easily sitting at an average temperature of 12. Exactly. If not lower. So I feel, and you know, at Christmas we had snow one year, even though it was the middle of summer. So I feel that like we, we should we should be in the running to take over Sochi's spot. And maybe one day in 12 years' time, Melbourne will be the city of science for hosting the Winter Olympics. I love skiing. How fast do you think you can go down a track? Well, uh, reasonably fast. I mean, I've got, I haven't measured myself with a speed gun, but I'm sure I could go faster than I did if I was falling, just rolling down the hill. How about 160 kilometers and higher than that fast? I don't, I don't think I hit that fast. I'm probably too scared to do that. Mostly of like running into something at the bottom. Well, these are the, spe- the speeds that the, uh, the ski run champions at the Olympics are going down the mountain at. And that's pretty fast when you think about it in comparison to like a race car. So a um, normal car, obviously, you, have, you can't take a normal street car over about 150 without it starting to freak out. Just like that, you can't take any normal skier and send them down a mountain that quickly without their knees starting to break from the strain. But these are the kinds of crazy forces and speeds that the Olympians get up to. And you think that, yeah, you know, when you're going that fast, surely the best of the best would stand out really, really easily. But a gold can be milliseconds away, and the difference between gold, silver, or bronze can be the tiniest little advantages that you can make out. So if you were going down a mountain and you wanted to work out the best way to do it and how to ski better, how would you go about it? Well, I mean, that sort of starts in a whole number of things. I mean, obviously you have your skis and stance and your outfit and then you sort of make pick a run that's not going to be terrible and result in you dying that that's generally my approach well that's the general approach that most people take but a couple of athletes are starting to get a little bit more serious about incorporating science into their training regimen steven nyman is an olympic skier and he has started to really incorporate science into improving how he goes down the mountain Wait, are you talking about things like diets and like that type of thing? Not just diets. This guy has get he's getting really crazy into it. So he has a really um, strictly controlled diet and gets his um, like glucose levels and other chemical levels in his blood checked every day. I mean, waking up in the morning to do a blood test and a urine test is probably not most people's ideal start to the day, but that's what they undertake, apparently, in this training regime, which is part of the United States Winter Sports Program. Yeah. 
And it's not just that, he also goes and he takes himself into wind tunnels to make sure that he can ensure that he learns the exact best position to pull his body into to reduce his wind resistance. So this is really interesting because you, when you think about skiing, the immediate part that you think about doing science to is the skis themselves. Like you want a ski that slides the best and I guess has the most grip when you need it turning and cuts the best. But obviously there's a certain point when you've got really finely tuned metal and there's not much more you can do to it. And that's only one aspect of it. So what are they looking at when they're in the wind tunnel? Well, it's actually very similar to what they do when they're testing cars in wind tunnels. They want to get the, the least air resistance possible because every part of your body that the wind is slamming up against and isn't just smoothly passing over will slow you down when you're moving really quickly. So they, they put cars into wind tunnels to see just like how disrupted the air is and they can form like a mathematical number that represents just how wind resistive that thing is. And so uh, Steve Nyman has been jumping in a wind tunnel and doing exactly that. He's been having really high velocity winds pummeling into him and he's been learning to hold really still, as still as a statue. Inside a hurricane, that's you know, high powered winds in a wind tunnel, that's phenomenal because when you see what they're doing with cars and aeroplanes and wind tunnels, they have massive fans that generate winds well over 100 to 250 kilometers an hour. That's just in the standard testing. So this is, this is crazy fun. And he's trying to stand perfectly still in that. Yeah. Not only that, he's been successful too. And apparently it's been really working. He's learned to, he's learned the exact position that he has to go into to reduce his wind resistance. And he's been able to train his body to snap into that position a lot earlier and faster than other competitors. And that's what's really interesting about this as well, because it's not like he's just tested one set of conditions, like facing straight on into wind. Because, you know, in a wind tunnel, you can make sure that that happens every time. But when you're on a mountain, you have no idea where the wind is going to be coming from or how it's going to be going. So he's actually actually also practiced crosswinds and different wind conditions, and he simulated those environments. And that's where the wind tunnel comes in, because you can say, okay, if you have a wind that's heading in this direction or at this speed, this is the best approach. Or if you have a wind that is heading from behind you, this is the best approach. So he's really able to come up with a whole bunch of scenarios and tailor his physiological response to each of those conditions, which is a crazy level of science when you think about it. One of the other funny parts that they found out when they're in the wind tunnel is that uh, they thought their suits were reasonably good in 2012. And, you know, we're, we're used to all of this, you know. But we've seen these athletes in these fancy, you know, onesie, onesie amazing outfit suits. But they found that they, um, even though they had sizes, when you put them into a wind tunnel, they just flapped in the breeze, no matter what size they were. And so they actually had to start really tailoring the suits exactly to the athlete's muscles and specifically the shape that it's in when they're in their tuck position. Every single contour is mapped out and planned out in these outfits. They're really incredible technology just in the fabric itself. In fact, there used to be some concerns a couple of years back where the, uh, there used to be a couple of concerns a, a few years back at other Olympics that the swimmers, their swimsuits were actually getting so good at streamlining their bodies that they were becoming the critical factor in deciding who won rather than the actual skill of the performer, which is why they now have regulations for keeping the swimsuits the same all across the board. It's, um, it's quite interesting as well. So that's, that's the wind tunnel aspect of it, and the suits and, and that kind of thing. But what else did they look at? Well, as you know, when you're going down a mountain, there's multiple ways to go down a mountain, and they have to go through particular flags, so there's a certain course that's set out. But there are definitely um, worse and better ways to do it. 
And so rather than just going down for his couple of practice runs and trying to work out by gut feel what the best places to really go full speed and what places to try and slow down and keep stable were in, um, he was tracked by a, a satellite and tracked by GPS so that he knew his exact position down each of his runs and could work out the exact ideal run for each time he went down. So did he use uh, Siri or Google Google Voice to ask him for the best route down the mountain? Uh, maybe not quite like that. Perhaps a little more high-tech and a little less user-friendly. Yeah, and it's really interesting mathematics because there's a lot of different ways to consider optimal runs. And if, you, if you're logging exactly the positions that you've taken each time, that you can just build up a whole mass of data and go, okay, when you did that, you had this time. When you did that, you had this time. And really not only have a prediction about what's good, but also input to that and say, actually, no, we thought this was good. It was bad. Don't go down that time. Go down here slightly differently. And that's some really interesting mathematics being brought into it. I would just like to bring it a bit back, though, to Australia. So we talked about some of the, the fitness and the diet and the monitoring of, that goes into these athletes. And there's actually a bit of an Australian connection here because this, this ski is, is works in the, the United States um, you know, U.S. Ski and Snowboard Association and um, their center of excellence. So he's part of that program there. But they actually have hired an Australian coach. And an Australian ski coach may not seem like the most obvious thing to do. We don't have the best, you know, mountains in the world, especially compared to America or Europe. Oh, look, Kosciuszko is fine. Okay, I'll, I'll give you that. But um, what they looked at is actually, he was a sports scientist from Australia who had a lot of experience with Australian Institute of Sport. And the high efficiency gains that can be really get can be really achieved, like Australia has done in the pool, from monitoring diet and monitoring strength and what the uh, the athletes are actually doing. So he'd worked previously with the Australian swim team and the Australian Institute of Sport. And so this coach, Flanagan, had, had brought all that knowledge now to apply to skiing and it's exactly the same. Well, the, the Australian Institute of Sport was originally created because Australia had a bit of a crisis at the Olympics where we had a really embarrassing performance. And basically the Australian government went, no, we're going to get serious about this and we're going to do whatever we have to to get better um, Olympians. And that was the way that they did that was putting scientists up there with their coaches. Yeah, and that's and you laugh, you think that science and sport are the opposite kind of end of the spectrum. But in the world of high performance sport, they are one and the same. So science and sport are not as far apart as you might think they are. And if you want to win a gold medal, it can be those fractions of a second that all that time in a wind tunnel or a highly honed GPS route can help you save. So next time you're trying to win any sporting match, take a think about the science involved. Are you ready? For what? To exercise. I don't know. I'm a pretty stationary person, naturally, but uh, are you ready? I'm always ready to exercise. I mean, I'm just ready to go and go do some, like, squats and push-ups and things like that. And not warm up before you do it? But wh why would I need to warm up? I mean, does that even help with anything? Well, your muscles, if you think of your muscles like elastic bands made out of rubber, well, if they're really cold when you start stretching them, then they can start to tear and that's how you get really bad cramps and sores from overextending the muscles. But if you spend a bit of time warming up first, then you're able to stretch them out and it really won't be so painful. Mm, that, that might solve my constant injury problem. But, but the thing is, if I'm warming up, I, I usually spend a lot of time sitting down. I mean, wouldn't my muscles just cool down if Again? I mean, is there really that much point warming up? Is there a way I can make it so that I can warm up, then wait a while, then go and finally do my exercise? Well, Team Britain, 
as in Great Britain, had this problem with their cyclists when going into the Olympics in 2012. And they come up with they came up with a pretty smart way to deal with their warming up and cooling down problem. See, their cyclists would spend some time on a stationary bike warming up before race, but then they'd have like five minutes, five to ten minutes of sitting down before the actual event to kind of calm their nerves, and in that time their muscles would just get really cold. So how do you keep something warm when you're even when you're sitting down? You use hot pants. Hot pants. Oh my god, this sounds great. You're not just talking about like some shiny gold material, are you? Oh, oh no. We're talking literal hot pants. These are pants that are hot. They in fact have battery power the battery powered pants that warm up to keep the the cyclist's legs at an optimal temperature of 38 degrees between their warm-up period and starting the event. Do they keep these on during the event? Oh, no. Um, what they actually have is a quick release zip down the side that lets them tear them off really quickly before going to to start their cycling. It um, seems like a bit of a really tiny improvement to the system. I mean, if you think about it, surely it can't improve these already super fit athletes that much, but at the Olympic Games, you can win or lose a medal by a millisecond if that's what it takes, then surely that's what you'll get. So maybe these like tiny little improvements might just be the difference between a silver and a gold medal. Yeah, exactly. And we got to get those tallies up. Surely, I mean, some of the other countries have thought of this or something like it. I mean, the Great Britain going around for a week with the like athletes strutting, strutting around in hot pants? Ah, they actually only announced these the day before the Olympics started, so no one had the chance to copy the idea. But it will be interesting to see if at the uh, 2016 Olympics other cyclists are sporting these lovely hot pants before their events. So after an absence of 10 years, ladies and gentlemen, we are pulling out all stops for this, what is our one-year anniversary of our show, LaGrange Point. We're bringing back a segment that was once popular in the Young Scientist of Australia's publications and magazines and websites called The Mill. And their famous section, From the Mill, Not Even Rocket Surgery, which we consider ideas behind science that aren't quite up to scratch or aren't quite fully serious. And we'll be taking prompts and questions from you, the audience. So if you have an idea that you want to have explored, if you want to know something that you feel should be explored in a scientific or silly way, we'll be happy to answer those questions on whether or not it will be possible. And that's what we'll be doing in this segment. For this first week, we're going to be looking at Winter Olympic sports and what sports are possible and just what are the real limits that you can get to for a sport to be officially considered for the Olympics. Now, we all know curling is up there and how curling managed to make it into the qualifications of the Olympics is a mystery, I'm sure, to anyone. And if curling can make it in, what do you have to do to not be led into the Olympics? Well, for one, it seems that uh, the grace of the sport seems to have something to do with it because a couple of these sports, while they sound all right in concept, when how they look and how they're performed, um, it's... A little comical. More comical than a bunch of people furiously scrubbing the floor with brooms. <laughs> and I suppose in the Summer Olympics we have horses dancing. Look, horses dancing makes legitimate sense because sometimes you may want to go sideways on a horse. But what about people dancing? For example, I mean, we have um, ice skating, which is amazing and everything. But how about ski ballet? You're going to have to run this past me again. 
Because one of the big problems about ballet is you do things on points and you have very intricate feet movement. If you've ever been in skis in your life, you will understand that moving your feet intricately is not an option. You literally <laughs> cannot move anything around your ankle. You, you get stuck in a direction and you go with the flow. And maybe if you're lucky, you can turn. So what, what are you talking about with ski ballet? What I'm talking about with ski ballet is um, people strapping skis themselves, going down hills, but still being able to perform turns and balancing on one ski. And they, you can do this in duets and things and... Doing partner work in skis, though, would be phenomenal because you have to watch out to not take out your partner's skis by running into them. Yeah, when I'm skiing, I have to be careful not to take out myself while I'm skiing. So has this ever been tried before, Lauren, or used at an Olympics? Why And why isn't it a success? Well, ski ballet is actually, um, it's actually known as a cross ski, and it was tried twice. First in the 1988 Olympics in Canada and in the 1992 Olympics in France. I guess it mustn't have been a very popular sport if it hasn't made a comeback after those two games. I mean, but apparently, though, it used to be very popular as a freestyle skiing discipline from the 1960s to 2000. It turns out some people actually still teach um, skiing ballet as well. Well, it might still make a comeback. You just If you're interested and you have the idea and you're passionate about dancing down a slope, then try ski ballet or acro ski. So what other ridiculous snow sports are out there that try to qualify for Olympic contention? Have you ever been roller skating while walking your dog? Yes. And then just kind of let your dog drag you along for Always. a while? It's like being in one of those uh, the old dog sleds, except in the summer and also not as fast. Yeah, well, it turns out that there's a sport that's a little bit like that. It's called skeejering. And the basic concept is that Instead of on roller skates, you are on skis, cross-country skis, and it's kind of like walking two very enthusiastic dogs. You or just... horses, apparently. Or horses. Uh, and the, they've also used like a couple of like snowmobiles and that sort of thing. It was it came from a form of travel. People actually used their dogs to help them run around on their skis because cross-country skiing is really kind of difficult if you're trying to go up hills, that sort of stuff. But um, ski during has become a bit of a, a sport. You can do time trials with your two dogs, and all you really need is a pair of skis, some rope, and two dogs that really like to run. So is this going to become the new form of dog, dog walking as well, competitive dog walking? Well, I'm assuming in Scandinavia, where this sport comes from originally, then it's just fact of life. <laughs> Got to take out my dog for a walk. Well, I'd better put on my skis. So that's quite sad that that is not a sport, though I think if dog walking becomes an Olympic sport, we have a problem. I don't know. If you take the time to look at the videos on YouTube, it looks more than a bit awkward, especially when the dogs get a bit distracted and uh, stop running. <laughs> all right, but Millie, what if I just really love speed? What, what can I do in the Olympics that's just all about going as fast as possible? Having a really, really strong need for speed? Yes, a desperate need for speed. Well, if... Hitting the uh, current land speed records in a car isn't really your thing, then you might want to try it on some skis, hurtling down a mountain as quickly as you can. Okay, so hurtling down a mountain, how fast can you go? Well, it's been improving, of course, as skis have improved, but uh, like, say if I was to go down a mountain, I might hit, you know, 70 kilometers per hour, 80 kilometers per mm. hour on a, good, on a good slope, but... The people who are really into speed skiing are going to be hitting around 250 kilometers per hour. In fact, 251.4 kilometers per hour is the world record for this sport. 
for comparison, terminal velocity, so when you jump out of an airplane <laughs> that you hit, so the maximum airspeed due to air resistance of a skydiver is about 190 kilometers an hour. So you're going faster than a skydiver. Pretty faster much. Faster than a skydiver. So, so why is this sport not in the Olympics? Uh, well, it was a demonstration sport in the 1992 Olympics in France. It seemed to be that the 1992 Olympics, they were trying quite a few new things. Unfortunately, during a warm-up, a skier died when he crashed into a snow-grooming machine. So the sport might have um, not a bit quite of a made it due to that. I heard that they, they're not actually allowed to exceed 200 kilometers per hour now because of that. Um, it depends. Like, for if you're doing just sort of racing events with speed skiing, then there is a ski federation that actually regulates this and sets a hard limit of 200 kilometers per hour um, just for safety reasons. However, at the Olympics, um, where the professionals are racing, there wouldn't be a limit. They'd just be trying to get as fast as possible. So I, I love ice skating, and the figure skating is really one of the most fantastic events of the Olympics. But when have you ever thought about why don't they just add more people? Because it's, ice skating is terrifying and you've got a whole bunch of blades and attacking people. There's yeah. already two people on the ice. It's already pretty difficult. So what they actually have tried as, a, um, as another sport that's currently actually under review for eligibility. It's not yet been included, but it is under review. It's really popular in North America. It's precision synchronized skating, like synchronized swimming but in massive phenomenal teams. And if you've been to any ice show like Disney on Ice or um, Torvald and Dean's ice shows, they did phenomenal mass grouped synchronized dances. And there, they look amazing. So that's one that is potentially going to become a sport in the future. If you want to be involved in our Not Even Rocket Surgery section, go to our Facebook page, check out our SoundCloud page or profile, post a comment there, post a comment on our website, or send us an email with your questions for Not Even Rocket Surgery, and we will answer them no matter how weird, wonderful, or wacky. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. So this week we've covered all things to do with the Olympic in our one-year anniversary show. We've talked about crazy science related to the Olympics, some marginal gains from hot pants, as well as some sports that really didn't quite make the cut. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.